So for the last four weeks, we have been discussing cliches that many Christians use many times in response to people who are hurting or suffering or struggling with hard times. They're sayings that just seem to roll off our tongues, right? Especially when we're not exactly sure what we should say or what we really should do. And our intentions are good. I mean, we want to comfort people. We want to help people feel better. But sometimes we end up doing harm because we haven't fully thought through what exactly it is that we're saying when we use these cliches, or we haven't completely thought through how it is that the person who's hurting might hear what we're saying. Before we jump into this final week's half-truth, I want to just review the half-truths from the first four weeks. If you'll remember week one, we talked about everything happens for a reason. And then during week two, Pastor Lisa talked about God won't give you more than you can handle. Week three, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And then last week we talked about God helps those who help themselves. I don't know about y'all, but since we started this series, I have been amazed at how often I've heard these sayings, all of them, in things that I've watched on television, heard on the radio, read in books, heard in news reports, just rolling off of the tongues of all the people around me. And it has convicted me even more so that I want to be really careful about using these cliches. I am more and more convicted that these are not helpful things to say. It's my hope that all of us going forward would be much more aware of when we're using them, or better yet, not using them, and thinking more fully about what it is that we really want to say to this person in this situation? What is it that we could say that might actually be helpful, that might be grace-filled? This week's half-truth is not very helpful, nor is it very grace-filled. And unfortunately, it's one that I hear an awful lot. In fact, I've used this in the past. It is, love the sinner, hate the sin. And we think it sounds gracious and loving, right? I mean, all we're doing really is simply acknowledging that we all sin and that we're all called to love all people even if we don't really like all the things that they do sometimes. The problem is, is it can so easily come off as a backhanded compliment. I mean, we lead with all this love And then we pull the rug out from under them by pointing out what we've determined is their sin. Love the sin or hate the sin. In some ways, I find it a little bit hard to argue with. I mean, surely Jesus said this, right? I mean, he loved all kinds of sinners. That was his trademark. He sought out and called as one of his disciples a tax collector. And he ate with prostitutes, and he defended adulterers. I mean, the first part of this saying, at the very least, is something Jesus said, right? Love the sinner. Well, first of all, it's not in Scripture anywhere. Though it seems like something that Jesus might say, he never does. Not one single time. Jesus does say, however, love your neighbor. Remember? 
And Jesus also says, love your enemy. Which actually, if you think about it, is just a neighbor who's harmed you. Or who you're at odds with. So to translate, Jesus said, love your neighbor. Period. Because responding in love, particularly if you look at the example of Jesus' life, is the primary thing that has the power to change the world for good. And when Jesus talked about loving your neighbor, he wasn't talking about having this warm, fuzzy feeling toward everyone you encountered. I mean, you're not expected to snuggle up with everybody you meet. But he was talking about desiring good for other people, desiring the very best for everyone you meet. And even in some cases, taking action to promote the best for others. Maybe you share a kind word, or maybe you encourage someone. I mean, we can even love neighbors who we've never met and may never meet. People, for example, who were affected by Hurricane Harvey. People for whom we've raised money and we've built flood buckets to support them. People who some of us have met by going out on early response teams to help them begin to muck out their homes. We can love the homeless and the hungry who are right here in Austin. We did that last Sunday in Children First Worship when we assembled manna bags to take out with us and hand out to people we might encounter who are hungry. You can also do that by signing up and participating with Mobile Loaves and Fishes, something this church is very committed to, or show up on the second Tuesday of the month at First United Methodist Church and help with Feed My People. You want to love people? You want to practice really loving people? Sign up to work on a Kairos prison team. Or work with Women's Storybook Project. Go into our local prisons and minister to those who have been incarcerated. We love our neighbor when we show up to host people we don't even know at community events like our fall festival next Sunday. We are not going to screen them at the door and examine their sin as some sort of act that they have to pass before they can enter. Because Jesus said, love your neighbor, period. He did not say, love the sinner. You may wonder, well, why not? Why didn't he say that? Certainly seems to be what he lived into. Well, Adam Hamilton had a few ideas that I think hold water. First of all, he points out that it would be redundant to say that. I mean, love your neighbor pretty well covers it, don't you think? And because, as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So why point out the obvious? Does Jesus really want us to be focused on the sins of others? No. Jesus wants us to be focused on loving others, which sets us up for the second reason that Adam Hamilton proposes that Jesus never said this. When we say, love the sinner, we claim the role of judge for ourselves. Love the sinner is a judgmental thing to say because we generally 
only use this saying once we have determined what another person's sin is. And Jesus did not encourage us to spend our time or our energy worrying about other people's sin. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you remember in our scripture reading, that whole log splinter thing, do you know who Jesus was talking about when he told that parable? He was talking to and teaching his disciples. I wonder why he thought that these people, of all people, needed to hear this message. Maybe it was because he suspected that as they continued to follow him and grow in their faith and be transformed, that they might experience a growing temptation to feel or act in a self-righteous manner. Maybe their growing perfection would lead them to begin to think that they were called or it was their job to convict others of their sin. Billy Graham was asked once about this, and he said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's our job to love. Jesus was talking to his disciples. He was talking to you and to me. As people, as we become religious or as we find Jesus or we begin to take this journey down a spiritual path, growing in faith, it's tempting sometimes to, without even realize it, begin to feel a little bit self-righteous, to begin to feel a little holier than thou. And before you know it, we're pointing out other people's sin. Rather than confronting our own, we've become hypocrites. We may even think it's for their own good. We may even think, well, we're just trying to save their soul. But it's not our job to save people. In fact, we don't have the power to save people. It's our job to follow Christ. And it's our job to lead or point those we love toward Christ and to trust Christ to do the saving. We're called to love that's what Jesus told us to do, period. We walk around with a log of self-righteous hypocrisy in our eye, and we're trying to use these little bitty tweezers to pluck out somebody else's splinter that they have in their eye. Y'all, I can't even pluck my own eyebrows anymore without one of those mirrors that magnifies like three or four times. I don't need to be focused on anything that might be going on in your lives, we are focused on the splinter in another person's eye when we say, love the sinner, hate the sin. And like the Pharisee in the parable from Luke's gospel that we heard, we're taking the position that we are the righteous ones, that we somehow are in a position to judge other people. Pharisee in Hebrew likely meant something like set apart or separated one because they believed that they needed to keep themselves separated from people they had determined were sinners in order to remain holy themselves. And the tax collector in this parable, he is the absolute worst kind of sinner in the Pharisee's estimation. 
I mean, he is a Jew who collaborates with Romans to oppress other Jews. Makes him a traitor. He would exhort, extort money from his fellow um, Jewish friends and neighbors because he could keep any sum of money that he managed to collect over and above that which the Romans claimed for their taxes. Remember, the preface to this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector goes like this. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. It's self-righteous and judgmental when we label our neighbors as sinners. Jesus very conspicuously did not say, love the sinner, hate the sin. Because he doesn't want us to judge. It was Jesus' non-judgmental posture, his approach, that managed to change so many people's lives. So where does this saying come from? Why do we think that this is part of the gospel? It seems to have originated with St. Augustine, who was around in the late 4th and early 5th centuries CE. He wrote a letter to some nuns who he was trying to encourage to remain chaste, and he said in the letter, love, he said in the letter that they should have love for mankind and hatred for sins. And then Gandhi, he said something that includes this concept, but he expanded upon it. And we rarely quote the whole thing, so we don't get the full meaning that he intended. This is what he actually said in full. Hate the sin, not the sinner, is a precept which, though easy to understand, is rarely practiced, and that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. When people quote this, they usually leave off that latter half. Gandhi was not advocating for our half-truth. He was pointing out that most people find it really hard to hate someone else's sin without harming that person. If you ask a person who doesn't come to church, why is it that they don't come to church? Quite often, you will hear that it's because the church is perceived as hypocritical and self-righteous. They perceive church people as judgmental and mean, and they don't want to be a part of that. Jesus doesn't say the second part of this cliche either. He does not say hate the sin. Jesus doesn't focus on people's sin. He focuses on God's love and grace, on God's forgiveness. When we focus on the sins of others, especially when we act like we don't have any of our own, it's a turnoff to non-religious people or to non-church people. There's a comic that sums it up really well. <laughs> I think that pretty much says it all. We need to learn how to follow Christ faithfully and fully and not be a jerk about it. There are some people who point to Romans 12:9 that says, love should be shown without pretending, hate evil, and hold on to what is good. But in this particular passage, Paul is, t- is telling the Romans to hate the evil that they might be tempted to do. He's not instructing them 
to keep an eye out for the evil or the sin that others might commit. Of course, all of this does raise the question, what do we do about sin? What do we do about evil? I mean, are we supposed to keep silent about all sin? No. We are called to denounce sin that harms other people, that oppresses populations or does evil to others. I mean, we have to speak out as faithful followers of Christ against racism, against abuse, against injustice or intolerance. We have to stand up and speak out against and do something about things like world hunger or human trafficking. When a man shoots and kills 58 unarmed people and injures more than 500 others in an act of senseless violence, a type of act that has begun to occur so frequently in our culture that it's almost normalized, we need to speak out. We need to act. Proverbs 31.8 says, Speak out on behalf of the violence, I mean on behalf of the voiceless, and for the rights of all who are vulnerable. And we are called to hold one another accountable. I mean, when someone is harming themselves or they're harming another person through sin, with deep love and compassion, we may reach out to that person privately and choose to talk with them. But here's the problem with this particular cliche. Most of the time, when I hear this spoken, it is not in reference to these sorts of things. Most often these days, when I hear this particular half-truth, it's in reference to the GLBTQ community. Society and the church are really divided on how we view and how we treat GLBTQ people. And one approach that Christians take is love the sinner, hate the sin. But to say this is to make the judgment that GLBTQ people are making a lifestyle choice that we've determined is sinful. It takes the position that gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgendered uh, people are sinful, that it's a sinful practice rather than who they were lovingly created to be. We haven't really talked yet about how Scripture addresses homosexuality, though I'm sure many of you have studied it individually or in small groups. I know that Pastor Lynn and Pastor Lisa led a Sunday school offering a few months back that addressed all of these Scripture passages. There are a handful of passages in the Bible that refer to and condemn some very specific types of same-sex intimacy. These scriptures refer to instances where people who are in power are oppressing or abusing slaves or people who have not reached the age of consent. They weren't talking about loving, consensual, committed same-sex relationships. And Jesus never brings the topic up at all. So it begs the question, are these passages representative of God's timeless truth for all people? Or were these words written and shared 
in situations relevant to specific contexts rather than being meant to judge and condemn all people for all time who happen to be born gay. My husband James and I spent the day yesterday at an early response team training where more than 50 people gathered so that they could be trained in the skills that they would need in order to go out and help people whose homes have been destroyed by Hurricane Harvey. Work that's going to take years to finish, y'all. The need is so great. Among those 50 people, there were GLBTQ people. Quite a few, in fact. In fact, one of the leaders, one of the people who was teaching the class was gay. And I could not help but think as I sat there, look at all these people who have had such a love for God, whose lives are so shaped by and whose hearts are so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who are clearly gifted for ministry, who are clearly gifted and called by God, people who are willing to respond to that call, to respond to the overwhelming need of God's people. Look at all these people. And I thought, who am I? Who am I to judge these people? Why would I decide that because they were created differently from me, because they were created to love and commit themselves to those who are of their same gender, why would I assume they must be outside of God's love or God's will? It made my heart hurt. The whole truth, based on Jesus' witness, ends with the first word of our cliche, love. We are called to love, period. And to trust God as both our judge and our redeemer. We're called to open ourselves, to surrender our own hearts and minds to the transforming work of God's love that we might continue to be transformed. Y'all, half-truths confuse, discourage, and many times alienate people from God. The whole truth gives hope and encouragement, and it draws people to God. A God whose love will never stop pursuing us. A God whose love will continue to transform us. A God whose love will never, ever let us go. A God whose love in and through Jesus Christ calls us to love. Period. Amen.